Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simon Fishburn, Editor-in-Chief. Steve Osden, Washington Editor. Stephen Hansen, Director of Biopharma Intelligence. On today's podcast, a major revision of Europe's pharmaceutical legislation is in the works. What to expect? A Texas abortion case that could undermine FDA. A ruling is expected any day now. And a top official is departing FDA. What does this mean for the Office of Neuroscience? But first, today's podcast is brought to you by BioCentury's 23rd Bioequity Europe. Join us in Dublin, May 14th through 16th for a chance to meet the BioCentury team and two plus days of networking with investors, CEOs, CFOs, and business development leaders from across the biopharma innovation ecosystem. More than 120 biotechs have already confirmed to present. Visit bioequityeurope.com to review the preliminary agenda. And don't wait to register. Last year, we completely sold out. All right, let's get to it. Europe is working on a major revision of its pharmaceutical legislation. Leaked drafts from the European Commission have caused consternation at biopharma companies. They are worried that the legislation could cut IP protections across the board, especially for orphan drugs. They also say that benefits from the legislation, including incentives for developing drugs to combat antimicrobial resistance, are not sufficient to attract investment to Europe. Steve, Stephen, you have been chatting to lawyers, executives, investors. Steve, I'm going to start with you. What are you hearing? How dramatic could the changes be that are being talked about in these proposals? So look, it's not really a matter so much of a catastrophe from the legislation as a, as a massive missed opportunity. There are incrementally, there are things that are in there that certainly are going to be disincentives for investment, and companies are disappointed by that. Overall, though, what the sense that I got from people is even more is the sense that this is a missed opportunity to reverse what's been a long slide in the region's competitiveness. It could end up widening the gap between Europe and the U.S. and China, and that's a serious concern. There have been about 2,000 pages of leaked text and analyses so far, so it's not really possible in the next 30 seconds to describe everything or what what it's all about. I think the the biggest negative in the, the leaked drafts is a dialing back of regulatory data protection. That's a form of exclusivity that doesn't rely on patents. It's being dialed back from 10 years that most drugs get in Europe today to six years. And then it provides a few different ways that companies can claw back a couple of years to get back a maximum of eight years. Most of the avenues for getting those extensions of RDP, regulatory data protection, are problematic, companies told me. And the loss of RDP is important because about 30% of medicines in Europe rely on data protection to fend off generic and biosimilar competition. These aren't generally the most valuable drugs. They account for about 19 or 20% of revenues, but losing a couple of years of RDP is is certainly not something that the industry wants. I think 
more importantly, there's just a concern, of, again, about this missed opportunity to put in place policies that would give companies reasons to invest in Europe and to reverse the gap in investment between Europe and, and the United States, and also to conduct trials of the most advanced therapies in Europe, where, again, they're falling behind the United States and China. So, Steve, do we know the thinking behind any of the things that you've just talked about? For example, the time that they would get protection and so on. As you say, I, I, I can imagine that one argument is going to be that it'll be cheaper or better for patients or something. But it does seem to contravene the idea of, of Europe really trying to get ahead and build these ecosystems. And, you know, we've had the um, IMI, we've had various initiatives in Europe which have really been all towards trying to create an innovation ecosystem. So there's a lot of words in the in the leaked drafts about innovation and about supporting innovation. Their basic idea, I think, is, is that if you, you take away something and then you tell companies that if you do things that we want, you can get back to where you were before, that that is going to direct investment in the public goods that they want. So some of the avenues for getting back some of that RDP, one of them is if a a company launches a product in every EU country member state within two years, or if it's a small, a small company, small biotech within three years, then they can get an extra year of RDP. There are a lot of reasons why it's really impractical, probably impossible for most companies under the current rules to launch in all member states within two years, not the least of which is that Every country now is going to know that they have a lever that they can hold over companies and basically say, well, how much is it worth to you to, um, to, to launch in our country to be able to get that extra year of RDP? But there's a lot of other reasons why it's problematic. There are other things. There's, there's extra exclusivity for meeting what the European Commission calls a high unmet medical need. But they set the bar both very high for, for achieving that. And also it's very vague. So it's going to be you know, basically impossible for a company to know in advance when they're making an investment in a drug development program, whether they're actually going to be able to achieve that. But anyway, getting back to what you asked, theoretically, the European Commission believes that this will promote innovation because it will force companies or give them incentives to um, direct their investment in ways that would be innovative and would benefit the public. It's just when you look at it, most of the companies that I spoke with, all the companies I spoke with, said that it's not going to have that effect at all. This is probably a good time to, to ask Stephen Hansen what, you know, what investors are saying. Yeah, thanks, Steve. I mean, so I think investors have a lot of similar views to what you were hearing in terms of the fact that they just really see this as really kind of missing the mark because in addition to what you were saying around sort of fostering innovation, but not really fostering innovation, the other driving force here, I think, you know, that's worth mentioning is, is about equitable access. And really, and that's behind, you know, like you said, that um, the the EU-wide launch and trying to incentivize the EU-wide launches because I think there, there was a lot of complaining about the fact that sometimes drugs were being launched in Germany, France, Spain, Italy, and then it would take four or five years to get to some of the smaller EU member states. But yeah, I think, as you mentioned, you know, there, there are also some, you know, launch dynamic reasons around parallel imports and other reasons as to why that typically happens. And from the investors' perspective, before I even got into discussions about whether this would affect their investments, another point that they kept bringing up was the fact that, well, it's, you can understand what the legislation is trying to do. The problem is, is that a lot of the issues around equitable access 
are on the reimbursement and pricing side of the equation, which the commission doesn't have the authority to deal with because that is at the exclusive purview of the member states and their competent authorities. And so, so they're trying to put together legislation to try and push people in a direction that in the end, they don't have a lot of control over a large part of this problem. And, and so that's where I think some of the investors were really concerned that, that this was attacking something, but not in the right way. And the, I mean, the other thing I think is that there's, there's also a sense that by speaking out now that some of the aspects of the legislation could get changed. I don't think anybody thinks that there's going to be like a, a huge change in it, but there are things that can be changed around the definitions, for example, for unmet medical need, maybe tweaks to the incentive for launching across all member states. Uh, there are some positive things in here. There are a lot of things that um, streamline the regulatory process that uh, biopharma companies support. There's also an idea in there that could be really important, but the way that it's implemented, people have told me is not going to be effective, which is a transferable exclusivity voucher for the development of antimicrobial drugs. So if companies develop an, an antibiotic that uh, addresses AMR, they can get this voucher that gives them an extra year of exclusivity. There's two problems with the way that it's articulated in the draft legislation. One is that the definition of the products that would meet the criteria for getting the voucher is again, both too vague and too stringent. And the second is that the voucher is limited to products that have RDP. So you can get an extra year of exclusivity, but not on products that are protected by patents. So again, it's right. these the less valuable products. The um, European Commission estimates that the voucher will be worth about 350 million euros. People that I've spoken with Good think luck. it's going to be worth a, a whole lot less than that. <laughs> and, and that's just not going to make a company decide to invest in the development of an antibiotic that it wouldn't have done otherwise. And if you think about it, What's the purpose of an incentive like that? That's exactly what the purpose of it is. There's no good in creating an incentive that kind of pats people on the back and gives them a little something for doing something that they would have done anyway. That's just throwing your money away. What you need to do is to create an incentive that will lead people to do something that they totally wouldn't have done in the absence of it. Yeah, and Steve, you know, the other thing, just to finish my thought on, on some of the other feedback I got from investors, um, <clears throat> you know, the thing that they, they were all clear about is that they're not abandoning Europe. They're not going to be leaving. It's not like they're going to stop building companies in Europe because there are still other factors that they see as being really worthwhile. For instance, just the valuation arbitrage comparative to a, say, a Boston biotech, some of the costs in terms of, the, especially on the early stage side. But what I did here was, look, on balance, as, you, as your portfolio companies mature, the likelihood would be if these changes were to go through, you would probably see more of an emphasis or more of a priority put on the U.S. market, maybe the Chinese market, you know, on non-EU markets where you might have companies maybe opening an office in the U.S. earlier than they maybe previously would have thought, or these sorts of things where they would essentially be deprioritizing the EU market. There seem to be two different things here that, that you're covering. One is an innovation ecosystem and the ability to harness Europe's let's call it translational capabilities and prowess and start companies. What I'm hearing is that that'll still continue, mm -hmm. although there's also lag. But the other part of it is where you market your drugs. 
And so you're sort of looking at two or, ends of or, this. Yeah. And we do hear a lot of we do hear a lot of U.S. We have two things. We hear a lot of U.S. investors saying, "Why should I even bother with Europe? I have everything I need here at my doorstep." Which you know, many mm. Europeans then go, "Fine, take that," because we've got a whole bunch of other innovation here. And then we also hear investors sometimes say to us, "Well, when we model this, we just discount." you know, revenue in Europe because it's such a big unknown because the reimbursement landscape is so fraught. And so it seems that the second part of that is really going to be continue to be under threat. Well, yeah. The, the, and, and, and just I think it's just this general concern that what is being done is a bit more short sighted and doesn't really fully account for the long term ramifications in that having a less competitive sort of environment, the worry is that that can translate into lower valuations for a company or less ability to raise future financing, which means that for these funds, if you're having, you know, say slightly lower returns, then you have a more difficult time raising future funds to be able to invest in portfolio companies. That, that, you know, they're thinking about this in the 10, 15, 20 year timeframe. And, you know, the worry is that the commission may not be thinking as well in those sort of terms. So, so the, I, I would add two things. One is that um, I spoke with the CEO of the largest orphan or rare disease patient advocacy organization in Europe, and he expressed a lot of concern about the legislation, in part because he thinks also that it won't do anything to attract clinical trials of the most advanced products to Europe. He said that there's a, a gap, and that gap is growing, and that means that patients with rare diseases in Europe are getting access to drugs much later than patients in the United States and in in other regions. The other point that everybody made, which is related to what um, Stephen just said, is that the European Commission didn't adequately consider what the impact is going to be on future investments as a result of what it's done. And that's actually reminiscent of the criticisms that the biopharma industry has of the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States that just doing the math and saying there's X dollars that are going to be reduced from revenues for companies, and that's going to result in Y number of drugs not being developed that otherwise would have been developed, doesn't take into account the kind of decisions about the future that investors make and that companies make when they're doing acquisitions of other uh, of products from other companies. So, Steve, just one last quick thing then. You referred earlier to the fact that it's not completely game over. Tell us what happens next. No, I, I can't tell you what happens next because we'd have to have the whole rest of the podcast on the intricacies of European parliamentary procedures. But, okay. Okay, so there's there's going to be at least two more years that it's going to take to get to the end of this. There's going to be European parliamentary hearings. There's going to be the European Parliament voting. The European Commission is going to weigh into it. The Council of Ministers is going to weigh into it. And at the end of it all, something's going to get spit out. And what gets spit out is not going to be enormously different from what we've seen, but it'll be different. Steve, Stephen, uh, look forward to reading your stories. We're going to have a, a package of content coming out in the next couple of days. And obviously, this is going to be something to watch. Now that we have this, we have IRA going on in the U.S., I suppose everybody's just going to take their uh, innovation to Asia and, uh, and and wash their hands of uh, of the West. Who knows? All right, let's head down to Texas. A ruling is due any day now in a court in Texas that is challenging FDA's approval of abortion drug 
Mifepristone. Steve, alarms are ringing at FDA over this case. What's at stake here? So quite apart from the issues, the issues around access to abortion, which is obviously a very important and contentious issue, there are legal scholars, 19 legal scholars who are across the partisan divide and who have very different ideas about the ethics and morals of abortion, who filed a brief with the court saying that, that a decision against FDA could erode the integrity of the whole FDA approval process. What these scholars also say is that the case really should have been laughed out of court from the start, that, the, that, the, um, that there isn't really a valid case against FDA's approval of the abortion drug, but they're concerned that the judge who was appointed by Donald Trump and has a great deal of background in opposing abortion, they're, they're concerned that he's not really gonna look at the legal issues, that he's gonna rule against FDA. The next place that the, the logical place where a case like this could go is um, uh, through the Fifth Circuit, which also has a history of ruling against FDA. And then the place where we go after that would be the Supreme Court, which again has recently overturned Roe versus Wade and may not have as much respect for FDA's processes as these legal scholars would, would hope it would. Steve, just going back to you know what you talked about as sort of the broader issues with challenging FDA, as I as I understand it from what we've discussed and you outlined, a single state could say, well, I don't care if FDA has, I don't know, approved this drug for, I don't know, substance use disorder or something like that. Um, are, are we talking about the sort of problem of the primacy of the federal system over what states can do independently? And well, if so, in the interim, you know, if this gets, obviously it'll probably go all the way to the Supreme Court if the judge rules uh, adversely for FDA, but are there things that can happen in the interim as a consequence of this? Okay, so a few things. One, it's not so much states, it's about private parties being able to launch challenges of FDA approvals. And I think that the legal scholars who were concerned about this case most of them wouldn't go as far as to say that there should never be a circumstance where a third party can question an FDA decision in courts. I think people believe that there should be a, a check on the FDA, but they think that the bar should be a lot higher than the arguments that are being made in this case. And yes, there is a concern that the, this would open up FDA decisions that years, decades later, parties could come forward and, for example, say that they believe that an FDA approval of a pain medication or of, uh, of any other kind of medication uh, wasn't appropriate. Maybe even uh, competitors to a company could either directly or through a third party challenge an FDA approval as a way of getting a commercial advantage. So it, it just opens up the door to a great deal of mischief. About what happens next, there's an interesting development, which is that um, proponents of medical abortion have filed another case and they're trying to get another judge to affirmatively say that FDA's approval was legal. If they win that case, then that would set up an interesting dynamic where FDA would be able to say, well, we've got one court saying one thing, we've got another court saying another thing, so we'll just leave everything as it is until the Supreme Court weighs in, which could take some time. All right, well, staying with FDA, 
Billy Dunn is leaving the agency. He was at the center of one of FDA's most controversial decisions in recent memory, the approval of Alzheimer drug Aduhelm. He's also been one of the most vocal proponents of regulatory flexibility at the agency. Steve, what does this mean, Billy Dunn leaving? He's obviously been uh, in a lot of headlines and at the heart of uh, several key decisions lately. Are we going to see a difference at the agency? You know, I often think that there's a tendency to personalize these things too much and to focus on what individuals at FDA do um, rather than FDA as an institution. But in this case, I think it is true. I think Don has had an outsized influence on regulatory policy. As you mentioned, he drove the Adjihelm approval based on a spectacular and unusual decision to essentially partner FDA with Biogen and to push the approval through despite opposition from within the FDA. He intervened to get Amelix's ALS drug approved. And as you said, in the process, articulated a theory of regulatory flexibility that we've written a lot about. So his departure is going to lead to changes, I think. It's too early to say what they're going to be. And it's also too early to know whether the things that he's done over the last year or two are going to stick or whether there will be some kind of changes made when he leaves. One thing I think is that um, I've been told uh, by people who are close to him that he has been planning this departure at least for a few weeks, that that as of two or three weeks ago, he recused himself from um, decision-making at FDA. So if people are looking at, for example, the Riata uh, approval decision for their their drug for Frederick's ataxia that's going to be coming up any day now, his fingerprints may not beyond that. We might actually see from that decision what kind of direction FDA is going to make in his absence. He's certainly been a polarizing figure, I would say. So to some degree, do you think it is a good thing for the agency to have leaders who maybe don't have such a footprint or an imprint on decisions? You know, I I wouldn't make a broad statement like that. Look, it, it really depends on whether you like the decisions that people make or not. When when people at FDA, leaders at FDA step forward and insert themselves in a dramatic fashion to make decisions that people like, they celebrate them as heroes and say, look, this is somebody who's stood up and, and made a difference for patients. When they make decisions that people don't like, then they're a zero, right? I do think that it's important for for FDA leaders to speak up and also to do what Don has done, not to make a pun there, to uh, to explain themselves, right? So even if you don't agree with what he's done, he explained himself in a very clear way and made him and put himself on the record. You can look at other FDA leaders, you know, Janet Woodcock, Rick Pazder, Bob Temple over the years. They've also been out there front and center and been willing to put their names and their identity behind decisions that they've made. So, so no, I don't think it's a bad um, thing when that happens. I do think it's bad if there's either the perception or the reality that decisions are being made on an idiosyncratic basis because of one FDA leader's kind of pet peeves or their, their personal views. So that's not a good thing. But the idea that somebody has a forceful personality and um, stands behind the decisions that they make publicly, 
I don't think that's bad. All right, Steve, Stephen, Simone, thank you very much. Also on biocentury.com, we have the latest recommendations by EMA's Committee for Medicinal Products for Human Use. We took a look at the difficult week for the sickle cell therapy pipeline and the latest BioCentury show. Simone sat down with the CMO of Novartis. And remember, you can enjoy the BioCentury show as a webcast or a podcast available on Spotify and other podcast outlets. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcast. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education.